It's just the Easter Bunny, and, and that's okay. Um, hopefully, someday they'll know the truth, as we, of course, want everyone to know the truth. But um, for some today, of course, the Resurrection Sunday is, is a time that we do um, celebrate because we've received um, uh, Jesus, and, and we celebrate that. Um, some of you here, I recognize it might be a foreign concept for you. That's okay. I remember what that was like on my first Easter some of you um, may be here and you've heard the message of Easter, but you're still just not quite sure. Um, you might have a little bit of, of skepticism. That's okay, too. Again, we're glad that you are here because I truly believe that it's not by chance that any of us are, are in the room today, and so we are glad that you are here. And I've titled today's message, Credibly Incredible. And we're going to take some time and we're going to look at the evidence that supports the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And then we're going to consider what does this mean for us today. I come from a family of four girls with just a seven-year span between the oldest to the youngest. And um, I'm, the, I'm number three out of number four. And no brothers involved in that. And, and while all of us have spent just a, a few months or maybe a few years um, living somewhere else in the state, today all of us live in the same county, and we have for many years. Now, that's not too common today as we're so mobile, but that's the fact for us. And because our ages are so close and we all live in the same area, we have a lot of shared experiences between the four of us. And so when we get together and we talk about growing up, I find it very interesting that we each recall things a little bit differently. Now, some of us um, are a little bit more expressive and wordy. Some of us are a little bit more reserved. Some of us have a little bit more of an authoritative type of, of personality. And then the other one is, is, is a little bit more process-oriented. So that might take a, a, you know, be why it's, it's a little bit um, different in how we see things. Now, that's how I see our different personalities. And, and maybe my parents and, and, and my baby sister, who also is in the room today, will tell, pull me aside after service and say, okay, I know which one I was. <laughs> But I, I find that we are just different. But, but just because we had those shared events, you know, it doesn't make, and then with different perspectives, it doesn't make um, one's memory any less true than the others. We just have a different perspective on it. And, and it partly is because of how we are different as far as our personalities, we're unique. It might be whether we were an observer or a, a participant. It's hard to say what it is, but it does all affect how we recall an event. And it's much the same way with the gospel writers as well. The four gospel writers, um, of them, there was two that were, were disciples of Jesus, Matthew and, and John. So they would have had a little bit closer first-hand um, view of the life of Christ. Mark, called John Mark in scripture, had a close relationship with, with Peter, Barnabas, and Paul. And then Luke, he's the only Gentile author of the whole New Testament. And he had also a close relationship with Paul. And so as they recorded scripture under the direction of the Holy Spirit, they uniquely wrote about the events, influenced by their personalities and their experience. For example, Luke is a physician, and, and so he writes with a lot of references to medical terminology. Matthew, 
He's the tax collector. Yes, they even had the IRS back then. Um, but he was the tax collector, but he was also Jewish, and so he had a very, very strong emphasis um, from a Jewish perspective. John, he was a fisherman. He would have been closer to Jesus than any of them, though, as, as, as scripture kind of indicates that he was um, loved by Jesus, and so definitely a stronger bond there and would have had an even more personal view of things. And then if you're one that, that lives in this fast-paced world and you want a really condensed version, pick up Mark, because he moves very quickly through the story of Jesus' life and ministry, just really hitting the highlights as he goes along. And so, so yes, there are some accounts that, as, as you read through the four, that, that they have um, word for word the same, just small passages are word for word the same, but there's a lot of them that, that are not. And, and it might be perceived that they're inconsistent, and, and I would say perceived, because God's word's not going to contradict itself. And so while they may be worded different, they may have different um, facets to it, it, it is still true, just as my sisters would have different facets of the stories that we would say. So and I'll just explain it a little bit further. I, I think If you want to think about your own family for a minute, and how strange would it be, and you can put yourself as the parent or the sibling in this, but how strange would it be if the siblings would have, be asked to recall a number of events and they would say them word for word, exactly the same. Now that would make the parents in the room really, really skeptical. <laughs> because they would be wondering, what is it that their children are trying to pull over us this time? they would think that their kids were in cahoots with one another, somehow fabricating that story. Well, when we read the Gospels, when they don't match word for word, nor are they even in the complete same order, it's each author bringing his personality and uniqueness as he wrote the account of Jesus' life, death, and ministry, and resurrection. And it's the obviously the... the um, resurrection account that, that we're going to be looking at today. And I'm not going to read all four Gospels accounts, okay? Everybody's saying amen to that, okay? But what I am going to do is because I didn't want to just pick one of them because I thought we're going to miss some of it. What I did is, is I, I went to a, a Bible handbook that I have, and, and if you ever get a chance to pick it up, it's, it's Haley's Bible handbook. It's a great little tool. If you get a chance, pick it up, but also remember to pick up some either bifocals or, or little cheaters because the print's really itty-bitty. But it's a wonderful resource, and in this he had the compilation of the four um, accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And as before I read that, I want to just put a little bit of, of background in this before I do that. And it is that when the women went to, um, got up that Easter morning and, and went to the tomb, they did not expect to find it empty. They expected Jesus' body to still be there. And you might wonder, well, how do you know that? It's because what scripture says they were carrying with them. They were carrying spices with them. Now it would be like you heading off to a funeral with your flowers. That's what they did. And instead of taking flowers to show their love and, and respect for a person, they took spices. So they expected that Jesus' body would be there. They didn't anticipate finding an empty tomb. 
We also want to keep in mind that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the gospel or the the disciples dispersed. They were frightened that this was not their expected um, answer to Jesus coming and being the Messiah is him being killed on the cross. And so they all dispersed, and so they were in different locations even on Sunday morning. And so they're coming from different locations, and, and they're in different groups. And so Haley, the author, admits as, as he put this together, he said it's not easy to harmonize into a connected consecutive story the fragmentary records of the four Gospels about the resurrection of Jesus. And so I've also put it in, t- taken the liberty to put it into our more up-to-date um, modern language. But this is the, f- the following is his stab at, at putting these four Gospels together. He wrote, At the first break of dawn, two or more groups of women from their homes in Jerusalem in, or Bethany, probably a mile or two away, started making their way toward the tomb. It was probably about that time that Jesus was emerging from the tomb, accompanied by angels who rolled away the stone and neatly folded the shroud. The guards, meantime, frightened and dazed, fled to tell the priest who had placed them there. About sunrise, as the women approached the tomb, Mary Magdalene, ahead of her group, seeing the empty tomb but not seeing the angel or hearing his announcement that Jesus had risen, turned and runs to tell Peter and John. The other women draw near, see and hear the angels, hurry away by another route to tell the main group of disciples. By this time, Peter and John reach the tomb, go in, see the empty shroud, depart, John believing, Peter wondering. Mary Magdalene, meantime, following hard after Peter and John, returns to the tomb and remains alone, weeping. Then she sees the angels, and Jesus himself appears to her. Shortly thereafter, Jesus appears to the other women as they were on their way to tell the disciples, or as having told the disciples, were returning to the tomb. See how many different immediate reactions there was to the same event? They had seen the same things. But the guards were frightened and dazed. Mary was weeping. Peter was wondering. John was believing. Now most of the disciples were in the same camp as Peter was. Even though Jesus had told them repeatedly and plainly that he would rise on the third day, their reactions tell us that they didn't expect it. We don't know if they received what Jesus had told them as as a parable or maybe some just kind of a mystic story not to be interpreted literally. We really don't know. Maybe they were in shock. Scripture doesn't say, but whatever the reason, they apparently needed more evidence than reports of an empty tomb or a bunch of women rattling on about some nonsense that they'd heard from two angels. They needed more than that. They needed more than the evidence that Jesus had repeatedly told them this was what was going to happen. More evidence than the empty tomb. More evidence than his body was gone or that the angels had announced it or that Mary Magdalene had seen him or that the other women had seen them or that the two on the road to Emmaus had seen him. All this evidence and they still could not believe that the incredible had happened. John and and Luke both record Jesus' appearing to the disciples. 
And at first they thought Jesus was a ghost. But then Jesus addressed them, and I'm going to read from Luke 24, 34 through 48 here. It says that Jesus said to them, Why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost. Because ghosts don't have bodies, as you can see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understanding the scriptures, and he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. Scripture goes on to tell us that they must have believed because they worshipped and praised God in response to their encounter with Jesus. They finally believed that the incredible happened. Jesus was alive. Now there's one other witness that I want to share about because this happened after the the resurrection and after Jesus had appeared to the disciples. There was Saul. He was the persecutor of the early church and he himself had a powerful encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. Prior to this encounter, he went house to house taking and dragging the Christians out, both men and women, and throwing them into prison. He also completely agreed with the killing of Stephen, the man that the disciples had put in charge of taking care of the widows. This Saul was radically changed through this encounter and became Paul, missionary and author of 13 of the New Testament books. He shared that Jesus had appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And most of them were alive. So basically what he was saying is, go to one of those 500, or more than one of those 500. Talk to them. Talk to them about what they saw when Jesus came and visited them. He wanted them to know that they had credible stories. When we consider the various accounts and reactions of all that had encountered Jesus after he had risen, we see that there's typically a process that they worked through. And Haley writes, those who first proclaimed the story of Jesus' resurrection were themselves totally unprepared to believe it, determined not to believe it, and came to believe it in spite of themselves. This renders untenable, he writes, any possibility that the story was born of an excited and expectant imagination. The disciples or the witnesses were not in cahoots with one another. There was too many people involved to fabricate such a story. So therefore, it's, there is no conceivable way to account for the origin of Christ rising from the dead except that it is an actual fact. 
The resurrection of Jesus is, as one author writes, the grand event of the ages towards which all previous history moved and in which all subsequent history finds its meaning. And I would add, in which we find our meaning. Knowing and believing the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is, one of the, is the one most important item in the whole of human knowledge. Yet there are still doubters today. I remember visiting with a man who lived in the same building as Pat and I when we lived in Edina, the apartment complex. And he was a wonderful man. He actually invited us to go to a couple of um, string quartet um, concerts with him. And, and he, was, he was very nice. Um, and I would visit with him from time to time when we'd either meet in the hallway or in one of the walkways of the apartment complex. But I remember the day that he shared with me that he believed that the uh, stories of the New Testament, the writings of the New Testament authors, was just something that the, they had fabricated to, to make people follow the church. And it just broke my heart that he thought that there was no resurrection, that when you are dead, that's it, the end. And I thought, how do you live through life thinking that's it, that this world, this broken world that we live in, is all that there is. And so my heart just broke for him when he had shared that. And he was a very intelligent man. He really was. But somewhere along the way, he believed the lie that there was no evidence of Jesus' resurrection. But there is much evidence, credible evidence. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9, For I delivered to you as the first importance of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What did Paul receive? The good news. God's perfect plan for the redemption of all mankind. That Jesus bore the penalty of our sins, died on the cross in our place, and rose again. The Old Testament prophet wrote about Jesus hundreds of years before in Isaiah 53, 5, and 6. He wrote, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The credibly incredible happened. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is not just a story for us to read at Easter time when I think that's a a great time for us to read it, but it's not just for Easter. This is actual fact. Now I know that some of us in the room have already said, yes, Jesus has written, I believe it, well, if you're a believer, today's challenge for you comes from 1 Peter three fifteen and 16. He says, Worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. We're called to be witnesses for Jesus by Jesus himself. Are you prepared to explain what you believe? Part of our witness is simply in how we live, 
how we conduct ourselves, how we love. But part of our witness will be in words as we share our faith in Jesus, why we have this hope, how we trust him in good times and difficult times, having peace and joy which is not dependent on our circumstances. All of this demonstrates the hope that we have as a believer. Of course, in order to prepare ourselves, we need to be connected with the Lord through prayer and through reading his word. And then he's going to give us the words that we need when someone asks us to share why we believe what we believe. Of course, we do it with gentleness, but we also can do it with confidence that Jesus is Lord. We can stand when our faith is tested because our faith is not in vain because he has risen. Now, there's others that are still skeptical. And again, maybe that's you this morning and, and you need more time to consider that evidence. And, and that's okay. That's okay. But I want to share with you what one man who is in your, was in your shoes, um, a self-proclaimed skeptic, what he found on his quest to debunk what Christians believe. Lee Strobel was a, a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And his wife came home one day and she announced that she had become a Christian. Now Lee admits he was not happy about this. So he set out to disprove what Christians believe. By using his legal and journalistic skills, he researched for two years. And this is what he found, at least part of what he found. He said that there is much historical data that supports that Jesus died and rose again. In fact, he states, Lee states, that there is no dispute among scholars that Jesus was dead after the crucifixion. In regards to Jesus' death and the evidence for it, even the famous atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludman believes that it is historically indisputable that Jesus was dead. And the Journal of the American Medical Association states that given the historical evidence about Jesus, or Given the historical evidence, Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side. Because a lot of skeptics will say, well, Jesus really didn't die. The disciples just hid his body. And, and, and there is um, really no reason why they would have done that. Because you go on to see some of other Lee's Strobel's um, research that many of those that had witnessed to Christ's death and resurrection suffered greatly for believing that. Nobody would do that for a lie. There's also many early reports of the resurrection of Jesus, one that includes eyewitnesses by name that is dated back by scholars to within months of Jesus' death. And there are at least nine ancient resources or ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament that supports the disciples' testimony of spending time with the risen Jesus. There's also seven ancient sources, mostly outside of the New Testament, that support the deprivations and suffering of the disciples as they witnessed to what they had experienced. Again, I don't think they would have done that over a lie. They knew that it was true. Maybe you're here today and this is your first time hearing that Jesus died for your sins. And I remember hearing that for the first time. And I really struggled with that. I didn't know, or I, I didn't, didn't God know that I was trying to be a really good person? Well, please hear me. 
just because Jesus died for your sins, which he did, that does not make you a bad person. But the reality is, is because sin entered into the world through one man, all sinned. That's what scripture said. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That just means that humanly we can't live up to God's standard on our own. I think it's easy then to ask the question, well, what kind of God is that? I answer a holy God. A holy God. A holy God that loves us so much that he sent his son, his only son, to pay the debt of our sin. That we would be forgiven and have eternal life. Scripture says that if we profess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the good news. I'm not sure where you're at today, but I want you to give, the op- give you the opportunity to know that God's amazing love and forgiveness is available to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. Scripture goes on to say that whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I and many others can attest to that. Going back to Haley for just a final quote, he says, Our hope of resurrection and life everlasting is based not on a philosophic guess about immortality, but a historic fact. Jesus is risen. He's gone before us, and he promises to come back as he is preparing a place for each one of us who will believe. We're going to play a song in just a minute here, and and as we do so, you can sing along if you like. You can stay seated. You can stand up, whichever you prefer. Maybe you wanted to use this time to reflect on the message and, and the challenges that were put forth in, in preparing you to share your faith. Or maybe you want to use this time to consider the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Or maybe today is the day that you realize that you want eternal life and that it only comes through receiving Christ as your risen Lord and Savior. If you want to receive Christ, you can do so by simply but sincerely telling him that you are sorry that you've been trying to live this life on your own. A life that that you want to be pleasing to him under your own strength and it hasn't worked out so great. Would you just let him know that you need him and ask him to come into your life? He will certainly honor that request.